0: Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. Today is a recast of episode 18 from season one, featuring my conversation with my good friend, Mr. Andy Chrisman, from the group For Him. Andy will be here in just a minute to join me, but before I do, I've got two things I need to take care of. First of all, my email question of the week. It comes from Josh. Josh asks, what is your favorite kind of music? So in Nashville, there's this running joke. I like both kinds of music, country and Western. And so this is kind of like that. It's a little tongue in cheek. Uh, to me, there's two kinds of music. There's only two kinds of music there's good and there's bad. So I prefer the good kind, it's not limited to a genre or a style. But rather the quality of the artist, the songs, the production, and how the album is mixed. All of those things go into making great music. And if you got bad songs, a bad artist, bad production, or a terrible mix, it's going to be bad music. So there's good music, which I prefer. Bad music, I can't stand. So there's a few styles that I don't like, but it's just because I don't hear anything in those genres that makes me want to listen a second or a third or a fourth time. All right, so my pick of the week, I'm going to go back to an artist I mentioned a few weeks ago because he put out two albums almost simultaneously. Now, the artist is Jude Cole, and the album that was my pick of the week a few weeks back was Jude Cole's album Coupe Domain. Well, the other album that he actually released not too long after that is an album he produced himself, and it's called Coolerator, which is a collection of covers from his favorite songs from the 50s. Now, if you've ever wondered what classic songs could sound like if they were re-recorded with modern sounds, modern drums, modern guitars, modern plug-ins, all that stuff, and technology... This is a really cool album for you to check out. Jude Cole, as an artist, is amazing. He's a great songwriter, but he's also a great guitar player, and in this case, a great producer, because this album is really, really good. I really think you'll enjoy it. So go check out Jude Cole, Coolerator, this week. I really think you're going to love it. So now, without further ado, my conversation with my great friend, Mr. Andy Christman from For Him. Ladies and gentlemen, pull off to the side of the road. Get out of your cars and stand in cheer for the one, the only, Mr. Andy Christman. How you doing, dude?
1: Hey, sports page.
0: <laughs> okay. That brings up point number one. Explain to everyone what that nickname was. Where did that come from?
1: Okay. Well the the my the best I can remember. Uh, when you and I traveled in truth together in like what, 1987, 88, 89, somewhere in that area. All three of those late eighties. Yeah. You, uh, the one thing I always remember about you, John, was you always had a diet Coke (laughs) and you had, and, and it was like, man, one of those, one of those few times that we actually stayed in hotels Yep. or we got to fly somewhere. You remember how the USA today was free, like at the front desk. Yes. Or you could buy it for like 25 cents in a, at the you know at the airport and you would always reach in there real quick and grab the sports page yep out of uh, out of the USA today and it was always a fight because there were like three of us that wanted to, that wanted to get it and you, and you always knew how to get the sports so, just, so yeah sports page was just kind of a nickname that you got
0: even when I had to pay for it I would give the rest of the paper away because all I wanted to page. Yeah, you would.
1: Read the yeah, sports? you didn't care about the entertainment section or you know any of that other stuff it was sports page. And that was, yeah, that was back before, it really, like ESPN. I mean, right. we had ESPN, but it was, you know, the places we stayed. And that we, there, we didn't have that, that much knowledge. We didn't have the internet yet. We didn't have cell yeah. phones that could tell us every little thing.
0: Right. So yeah, speaking of sports, you know, one of the things that I remember about you when we were on the bus, in 88 – or no, I'm sorry, in the fall of 87 – uh-huh. every Sunday or every Saturday night and every Sunday night, we would be watching for highlights and stuff. Cause we didn't get to watch many games or anything. Right. And, and you told me all the fall of 1987. Yeah. The running back for Oklahoma state's really good, but the kid that's be- <laughs> sitting on the bench next year, he's even better. Tell everybody who yeah. the kid was that was on the bench.
1: Yeah. Well, the the guy that was, that was Oklahoma state running back at the time was Thurman Thomas. Right. And, and I happened to, this is crazy. So I was going to Oklahoma State at the time, and I got into a pickup basketball game, which was the worst decision of my life, <laughs> with a bunch of the with a bunch of the guys that were that were football players uh, for the OSU Cowboys, and uh, one of those guys was Barry Sanders, <laughs> and I just remember it because you know you know you go to school there and you're a sports fan so you keep up with everybody that's playing, and he'd gotten in a couple of games when he was a freshman and. Um, you know, it was just you could just tell this kid had something special. But man, I saw him on the basketball court that day, and just he just blew my mind. I'm like, this guy's not built. This just he doesn't do things like other people that I've seen. <laughs> right. And yeah, I remember, I remember that was like right before I left school and came on the road. Like within maybe two or three weeks before I left school and came on the road of the truth. And dude, yeah, he exploded. And obviously, you know, I I would say. Arguably the greatest running back in the history of football. That dude was amazing.
0: That's something coming from you because you're a Dallas Cowboy fan.
1: I correction. I was a Dallas Cowboy fan.
0: Oh, we have breaking news. Do tell.
1: No, we're divorced. I divorced the Cowboys about eight years ago when I just couldn't take it anymore.
0: Tell me how that came about. Well, I mean,
1: I don't know. I don't know if you've ever done this, John, and you probably have. With I don't know. You're you're pretty loyal to your sports teams, but. Um, From what I can remember, yeah. But uh, they're just—you know how you—I got this epiphany. Like, if I had a girlfriend that cheated on me mm-hmm. every, like, like every week, or just just <laughs> continued to cheat on me, I'd just keep forgiving her, and bringing her back. That's why I feel about the Cowboys and right. Jerry Jones as an owner, because I'm just like they give all these promises every year and all the sports providers believe that, Oh, this is the year of the Cowboys. Cowboys are, this is a super bowl team this year. And they always disappoint. Wow. And I just got to a point where I'm like, I'm, I'm done getting my heart stomped on. Right. I'm like, this is never going to change. And I picked up fantasy football and played that. And I just, I, you know, I just had a, had fun rooting for other teams and other players. And I've just never looked back. Now I just love to watch quality sports and I don't really have a team that I cheer for.
0: Right on. Well, that's cool. Um, you want to hear something funny?
1: Yeah, please. Until this year, I
0: was loyal to my sports teams.
1: Hey, um, you're a big Dolphins fan.
0: I am a big Dolphins fan, and I still love Dan Marino. I love the Dolphins. But uh, to be honest with you, they haven't won anything in 50 years that's meaningful, and I am not <laughs> interested one bit. I haven't watched five minutes of one game this year, and it all boils down to one thing politics. Yes. I simply couldn't care less about their politics. So to be honest with you, I haven't watched five minutes of news or five minutes of sports all year long. I think that's healthy.
1: I think, but you know what i you know, I haven't completely given up sports. I still love the spectacle of it yeah, and just the sheer, just seeing athletes at the top of their profession, just doing what nobody else can do. Sure. I really do dig that, but it does put everything into perspective. You know, you stop worshiping uh, teams and, 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 and players and stats and stuff like that. Like we used to, when you were young, yeah. you kind of see the other side of it and you just kind of go, yeah, I don't know that I want to, I want to stop everything I'm doing to watch what you're doing and what you have to say. And whether you agree with them or not, I think it really opened a lot of people's eyes and you could tell yeah. just by the numbers of people that stopped watching the NBA, and NFL, um, the, the, the ratings that are down, the money they've lost in sponsorships, Yep. Yeah. It, I think it has been an issue for them. And uh, you're not the only guy that, of my, the only one of my friends that has said, dude, I haven't watched a single NFL game this year. Yeah. Um, that's, that's significant. Trust
0: me, I've watched football 50 years of my life. There was nothing yeah. I loved in this earth more than NFL football.
1: Here's was just crazy. After you made that decision, did you really miss it? Well, you know what I replaced it with? What?
0: This podcast. I basically have <laughs> traded the amount of time I used to watch football into putting it into this podcast. And I've had a blast.
1: That's so constructive, John. I'm
0: so proud of
2: you. (laughs) Right on. Yeah.
0: Well, and had I not, who knows? We might not be talking now. So
1: That's right.
0: All right. So let's get to, for those that don't know, we've talked a lot about Oklahoma State and football in the last few minutes. You were a math major at Oklahoma State. I was. Okay. So explain for everyone how you went from being a math major at Oklahoma State to being interested in music and singing and then ultimately auditioning for Truth.
1: Well, let me tell you why I wanted to be a math major was because I really, growing up in Waco, Texas, there, there wasn't a lot of, um, uh, how would I say this encouragement Mm. to follow a career in arts, Right. you know, it was, uh, you know, you're going to go work on a farm or you're going to, you know, you're going to go work in the local Mars factory down the road or, um, you know, it just, there wasn't a, a, a premium put on art, on music, on, on anything in that. Genre, right? When I was growing up, and so there weren't a lot of musicians in my school, so I had no one to like hang out with to talk music and to kind of push me and to compete with. There just wasn't that in the area uh, area of Texas where I grew up. But I knew I could sing. I w- I had an unusually strong voice. Uh, when when I would sing at my church, people would notice like more than normal right. that I had I had a gift. And I had a lot of people speak over me. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, so we didn't call it prophesying. It was just, you know, it was like deacons of the church that would just really encourage you and say, man, I really see this in you. Right. So I did take that seriously just to go, OK, I do have something unusual here, an unusual gift that I don't see in anybody else around me. But again, there was no platform or a foundation of encouragement, even from my family, right. They would say, you know, you should pursue this. You should go be a music major. You should go try out for productions and, and, or see if you can get on with a band somewhere. It just wasn't any of that. So, you know, it was just kind of like this weird gift that I had that I didn't know what to do with. Right. And I didn't have any confidence with it. So when the time came to choose a college, when I graduated from high school, I was like, well, I'm really good at math. I'm really good at at physics and science. like that was just something that came really naturally to me. So I'm like, well, let's go somewhere where I can at least you know have a degree in that and I can go find a job somewhere. And if the music comes and finds me, then great. Hmm. that that'll be great. So my brother was at um, a church in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is where Oklahoma State University is and I just wanted to get out of Waco. I needed to change pace. So I'm like, well, I got a brother up there. They have a great math and science program, engineering program. I'll go up there and just see what that's like. So I went to Stillwater. It was a school at Oklahoma state. And immediately my brother started putting me on the worship team. Hmm. And so now for the first time in my life, I'm around really good musicians,
2: right?
1: Um, really great singers that are pushing me and I'm seeing what's possible with music. And I just take to it like a fish to water. I mean, these guys have become <laughs> my best friends. In fact, my uh, several of the band guys become my roommates in college. Uh, we start recording some original music. We go do some little shows here and there, um, and we even got some interest from a couple of of uh, national producers that that saw something in us. But it still didn't feel like that was a long term solution. Like it just felt really like you know a million to one that we were going to make it right. uh, in the in the industry. So I just continued to pursue my math degree. It was like, you know, if it happens, it happens. And then, you know, one day out of the blue, I get a call from Roger Breeland of Truth, hmm. who happened to be old friends with my brother. He had tried to recruit my brother into Truth 10 years earlier Oh wow! Uh, to replace Steve Green when Steve Green was leaving Truth. So my brother at the time was like, I've got a good job here. I'm a worship pastor at Olin Travel, but my little brother might be interested. Huh. So, uh, I got a call from Roger, I was in my apartment and that's just, that was just a weird phone call. <laughs> um, and he's just like, Hey, heard you could sing Why don't you come out and, and audition with us. And so this is, this is crazy. I don't know if you know the story, John, but he said, he said, um, get your plane ticket. You have to buy it on your own. I'm not gonna pay for it. So my dad shelled out like 350 bucks for me to fly from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Roger said, "Meet meet us in uh, Greenville, Mississippi."
3: Hmm.
1: I'm like, "Okay, great." So I begged my dad for money for a ticket. You know, I was I was just kind of like real nervous to ask him. You know, talking about leaving college when I didn't have my degree yet, chasing this music thing. I'll never forget what he said, John. He said, "I was just kind of just." Hanging on the phone, just waiting for it, (laughs) waiting for him to shoot me down. Right. And he said, he said, son, I'm going to tell you one thing. Don't forget this. Don't ever give yourself the chance to say, what if? Oh, wow. He said, you go do this. I'll buy your ticket. You go do it. For some reason it doesn't work out. You can always come back to school, but don't give yourself the chance to say, what if I want you to go, whatever that opportunity is in front of you, go for it. I'm, I'm behind you hundred percent. Wow. That's man. That was such a, that set me free. Like yeah. I felt like I could go and not be concerned with what would happen yep. or if I was going to disappoint my family by not finishing college. It was just huge. Um, and so I fly to Greenville, Mississippi and, um, I'm just like, okay, now what do I do? I'm at the airport. I don't, do I get a taxi I had like 50 bucks in my pocket, so I rent a taxi, and this guy has no idea where, where Faith Baptist Church is in Greenville, <laughs> Mississippi. So we we literally drive around for two hours what? in the Delta down there oh, no. yeah, for two hours. It's crazy, and we can't find a church. Finally, on the edge of town, way outside of Greenville, we find this place called Faith Baptist Church, and we've been stopping. And Remember, this is like 19, early 1987. Right. We had stopped – you know, it's several pay phones and look through phone books to try and find out where this church was. We finally find this faith Baptist church on the edge of town. and There's nobody there. It's all locked up. There's no, there's no tour bus. There's no truck. I was like, Oh my God, what's going on? Like is somebody playing this massive joke on me. Like what is happening? So I go, I go get a hotel room. I, you know, my dad had bought a hotel room there in Greenville for me. Um, and I'm just like, what the crap? Like, what's seriously? This Roger Breland dude can kiss my butt. I don't know what's <laughs> happening here, but this is a this is a terrible joke. So I get to my hotel room, and um, and John, I can't tell you how many times I use this story in my in my um, leadership coaching and training. Um, but I was just like, okay, God, I know you didn't make a mistake sending me out here. There's no way, right? So I'm just gonna. I had heard my pastor preach this message about a week earlier. He said the best, the best prayer you can pray is help.
2: <laughs> right.
1: So I did. I just sat on my the edge of my bed and said, "Help, Lord. I don't know what else to do. I need your help." Because I'm just like, I can't go back to my dad, and he's gonna. You know, I, I was still kind of worried about that whole dynamic. Just like, oh, right. You know, I I can't believe I blew this. So I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and this thought pops in my head. I remember Roger saying, um, yeah, Faith Baptist Church, it's, it's, it's right near Mississippi State University. Hmm. I'm like, huh, interesting. And I thought, go get a paper. So I went to the front desk, <laughs> got a sports page <laughs> from, from the paper, opened it up, and it said – uh, it was the front page of the, of the, of the sports page said girl, something about the girls basketball team at Mississippi state university, Starkville, Mississippi. <gasps> and I went, Oh my God, I'm in the wrong town. Oh my gosh. I'm in the wrong town. So now I'm like, okay, now what, now what it so is? It's like six o'clock now, maybe six 30 in the evening. right? And I know this, you know, the, the concerts like at seven or seven 30. <laughs> right. So I realized, I remember there across the interstate from where I'm staying, there's a, Big Baptist church. Oh
2: wow!
1: So I I walk across the interstate, huh. go to this church. It's all locked up on a Wednesday evening. Knock on this door, and this lady opens it up, and she's she's putting together um, the. You remember how potluck? Baptist churches used to have potluck dinners? Yes. On on Wednesday Every nights, Wednesday. you know. So she's helping put all this potluck dinner together, and I tell her my story. She didn't know who I am. I'm some 20 year old kid from Oklahoma.
3: Right.
1: And she says, she calls, So we, she calls, she said, Oh, hang on a second. My kids like Christian music. Let me call them. So she calls her son and she goes, okay. And hangs up the phone. She says, okay. Yeah. Truths in Starkville, Mississippi at Faith Baptist Church tonight. Oh, and I'm wow. like, Oh my gosh. So I'm like, how am I going to get there? She goes, get in my car. I'll take you. It's like a 45 minute drive. Oh, how cool. So this lady who does not know me, <laughs> And has got all this work to do at her church. She says, get in the car. I'm going to take you to Starkville. She drives me to Starkville. I walk out of the car, walk up as the concert is starting. I see Roger Breeland. and he goes, well, I thought you'd been here like three hours ago. <laughs> and I said, I said, bro, you sent me to Greenville, Mississippi. <laughs> and... I'm telling you, John, he heard me sing for five minutes after the concert. We went to the back of the bus. Oh, wow. He sat me down. He said, hey, you got a good voice. I think you'll do well here. He said, but that's not why I'm hiring you. Hmm. He said, the reason I'm going to hire you is because you figured out (laughs) how to get from Greenville, Mississippi to Starkville, Mississippi with no information other than what I told you on the phone. Wow. And you made it. He said, I need a guy like you.
0: Oh, cool.
1: And and that's how I got into truth.
0: Oh, man. Well, you know what, Andy? That says everything anyone needs to know about you, period. <laughs> That's why you do what you do every
1: day. Well, I tell my kids, I, I used to tell my kids this all the time growing up, there's always a way. Always hey, a way. there's always a way. Figure it out. There's always a solution. Don't ever give up.
0: Okay, so let me pause and, and ask you this. Tell everyone what truth was to us and to most people. Describe truth for those that don't know.
1: So... A group like Truth doesn't exist anymore, which is really sad, because Truth, I think you would agree with this, and Roger Breland always hated when we said this, but it's true, was Christian Music Boot Camp. Yeah. Uh, Truth was was a, um, a group that had, what, 20 to 25 people at any given time, eight singers, yep. uh, four band members, four horns. Sound people. Uh, two or three um, technicians. Yep. Yeah, bus driver, truck driver, secretary, uh, spouses—you know, of people that were on the road that you know would sell T-shirts and stuff. Yeah, uh, and we would do, uh, we would do a concert a night almost every night of the week. I mean, John, am I exaggerating? Oh no, when I say we do three hundred to three hundred twenty concerts a year.
0: Well, in nineteen eighty-eight, Andy, we did three hundred and forty-five. Oh my gosh. We did three hundred and forty five concerts in nineteen eighty eight. And the reason I remember that is because I literally slept in my bed one night that year. <laughs> well at least you had a bed. Well, it was my mom and dad's house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the one that I grew up thing.
1: in. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't have an apartment, you couldn't no. have a car, you couldn't have another life outside truth. Because literally it was like going in the military.
0: It was. You had
1: a you had a bag and a briefcase. Yep. And that was it. And a and a suit. No
0: cell phones, no internet, no computers. Nope.
1: Mm-mm. No, in my briefcase, I'd have a notebook, I'd have a Bible, maybe one or two books. I would have a a Walkman cassette yeah. deck and a pair of headphones, and that was it.
0: That was it. We pretty much yeah. all had the same thing because it's the necessities. It's all we had. That's right. I think Lanny had a razor.
1: <laughs> yes, he had an electric razor. He used razor. all the time. Yep. Uh, that's right. On the bus. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of great musicians came out of came out of truth i mean if we want to go all the back to like we I mentioned earlier steve green um a couple of people from first call uh, of course for him came out of out of truth avalon um let's see alicia williamson yeah, alicia williamson natalie grant oh go back go um, way back
0: the imperials tom reeves uh dick tunney yeah. the musicians mm-hmm. that played for the imperials back in the heyday
1: yeah and then and then you can't watch the CMAs without seeing at least three or four X truth members yep. on that stage, either playing or, you know, Karen Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, so Karen Fairchild who is little big and town. Lee Capolino, they both came out. And so Lee is now in point of grace and Karen of course is in a little big town. Yep. Uh, Mark, um, uh, Mark Childers, Mark and Mike. Yep. Mark Childers is the band director for Carrie Underwood um, and then there's all the people that tried to get on the road, all right. you know, there's, there's those old stories that, Steve, that Michael, that Michael DeBee Smith yep. auditioned and wanted to come on the road, but Roger said he was too young. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was one of those bands that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore and experience that doesn't exist anymore. And the reason it's unfortunate is because it was such a great opportunity for young musicians like you and I. Yeah. To just play somewhere every night. And we just didn't play every night. We played two and a half hours <laughs> every night, Yep, every single night.
0: Everyone in truth was good, which made everyone that got yes. into truth better.
1: Right. That's right. We pushed each other.
0: It was just stinking remarkable is what it was.
1: When I joined the front line of truth, I was the only one of the guys there that didn't have a music degree mm-hmm. or didn't go to school for music. Yeah, Everyone was two and three, four years older than me. Mm-hmm. had a lot more experience than me. I was just this this 20 year old kid from Texas who had a loud voice. <laughs> I didn't have any polish. I didn't have the right clothes. Mm. Um, but I knew I could sing right. loud and sing for a long time. And, you know, without that music degree, I had to prove myself in other ways. Right. Um, and I just I just determined, you know, the way I was going to survive in truth, because if you couldn't survive truth,
3: mm-hmm.
1: if you couldn't hack it. And, and, you know, here's another thing. You got on the bus and you usually sat with your the guy the guy you were replacing. Right. right. There would be an overlap there maybe 2 weeks. Right. And that guy would sit down with you and you would learn his parts.
2: Mhm.
1: And you would listen to to board tapes. Yep. Every single night and there was a, a chart book of what? 35 songs mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. That you had to know at any moment's notice because every every night the service was the concert was different. Yep. A different group of songs. So you had, to, you had to get in quick. You had to be good. You had to be solid every night. Yep. And if you lagged behind, <laughs> man, that bus would pull over at, at midnight and drop you off at the airport right. and you'd go back home.
0: Now, I can promise you I'm not exaggerating this, and you know this for a fact. Perfect was the goal every night. Yes. It wasn't just a moving target. It was like perfect was it.
1: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: I'm trying to remember who you replaced.
1: I replaced Mike Eldred. Oh, no way. Uh huh. Oh, wow. That's cool. And then Mike, see Mike's gone on and done stuff on Broadway. Yeah. And, and had a pretty successful career, um, doing that. And uh, again, again, another guy that just, you know, the, the talent level Mm -hmm. that that you're around every single day was just mind blowing, especially looking back on it. So yeah, it's sad that a group like, like truth doesn't exist. And I, I tell, um, worship leaders and musicians that I coach, I'm like, I hate to tell you this, but you're not going to get the experience that I got right? because it doesn't exist. You know, if, if you're lucky, you're going to sing two or three times a week for about 30 to 40 minutes each time,
3: yep.
1: you know, one in a million, you're going to join a band that maybe goes out on tour. And even that's not happening right now.
2: Right.
1: But you're just not going to, by the time I was 20, three, 24 years old, John, I already had my 10,000 hours. Yeah,
0: Truth was a doctorate degree in music for everyone that was there. It
1: really was. Yeah. Yeah. By the time I left Truth and joined for him, mm-hmm. I had already done a thousand concerts. Think about that. Unreal. A thousand concerts.
0: Insane. It's nuts. That's a career for most people. Like a thousand concerts is a career for most bands or groups. So before we move on from Truth... I want you to take a minute, talk as long as you want or as short as you want about Gordon Twists.
1: Oh, my gosh. I was hoping to get to see Gordon this last year. My wife and I just had our 30th anniversary.
0: Congrats, by the way.
1: Thank you. We were going to spend a lot of that time up in New York City. I booked tickets to several shows. We had all our our favorite restaurants that we were going to go to. We were going to stay there four or five nights. And the but one of the biggest things we were going to do was was hang out with Gordon. <laughs> uh, Gordon still lives in New York City. Had great conversations with him uh, before we you know as we were planning our trip. And I was so looking forward, if anything, just to say thank you to him, right? Just one more time, yeah. To because I wouldn't be who I am without him. Gordon Gordon is a guy at who back was an original member of Truth, like back from like the early seventies. But he went on to have a career on Broadway as a, as a vocal producer. Mm -hmm. So basically one of his big jobs was to rehearse, to get singers rehearsed and ready to go for, um, for performances. And so he was, I mean, he's just a monster when it comes to teaching how to perform, how to get the best out of your vocal. So Gordon would come on the road every now and then Roger would hire him to come out and spend some time with us. And he was amazing. Uh, he just, he was like, he's like, he's like four foot nine, a hundred pounds soaking wet. And, but he had, he just had this incredible energy. He's got a, a, a puff of white hair on his head. Um, and he would run all around the auditorium while we were rehearsing yep. and scream and throw his arms up and get in your face and, and tell you, you could be better. And I'm not getting enough from you. And <clears throat> I still hear his voice in my head hearing, I want more give me more. I don't believe you. Give me more. <laughs> the funny thing about
0: him though, is he didn't just tell you, I need more. I need more. Like he would tell you how to give him more. So he would tell you how to give him what he wanted. Right. Yes. Which is way different than someone that just doesn't like what they hear, but can't tell you what they want.
1: That's right. And he taught me, he taught me, um uh, my, my, uh, vocal coaching of choice, which is singing on the breath, which hard to believe is not taught because I'm teaching everywhere right now, right. all over the country and nobody knows singing on the breath. I'm like, how do you, how can you not know how to train your voice this way? Because every great vocalist right. in the history of time <laughs> sings like this, but that's what Gordon taught me and all of us early on was how to sing on the breath, how to get that power from your core, uh, how to sing for two and a half hours at a time. And like you said, be perfect. Yeah, perfect was the goal, and 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 it was attainable with Gordon by your side. Yeah, it was. Um, so yeah, he was just to me, he was the greatest mentor, vocally and as a performer that I've ever had. And almost everything I teach, almost everything that I go back to, when I'm when I'm getting ready to sing and perform, ultimately goes back to Gordon. Yeah,
0: I feel the same way, and as a bass player. I don't think, it, it didn't matter if you played second trombone. Yeah. He would he would make you better. That's right. It was just remarkable. So I just wanted to take a minute and talk about Gordon, because he's we all owe him pretty much everything I learned about playing in a band, I learned from Gordon Twist.
1: Yeah, he was amazing. And I'll tell you this, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to be great, mm. you need a Gordon Twist in your life.
0: Absolutely.
1: You're not going to get there on your own. You're not just going to guess right every time. Nope. And 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 we're all we're all at heart lazy creatures. <laughs> we're going to push ourselves until we go. Ah, I think I'll take a break. Right. When you have a Gordon in your life, you don't get a break. No nope. Gordon pushes you past what you thought you were capable of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a personal trainer in the gym. Yeah.
2: Man,
1: you can only do so much just by watching videos and and uh, reading things online. If you've got someone in your face telling you it's not good enough, give me one more. Right. Um, we're going to push it a little harder today. That's when you really start to see results and you start to break through barriers. So everyone that wants to do something significant in their life, no matter what it is, you need a Gordon twist in your life.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so Gordon and Roger and the 345 concerts a year, (laughs) all of that, that prepared you for what was next. What was it like? Tell everyone what it was like to literally be launched out of truth off the truth bus into for him and into CCM?
1: Well, it was a crazy journey, John, because you know, this, uh, being in truth, um, truth kind of had a, um, an underdog mentality to him, uh, especially Roger Breland. And I love Roger and he's a, he's a great mentor of mine, mm-hmm. but Roger, I think always felt like, um, no one gave truth, um, the recognition they deserved and rightly so, uh, he's he's since been uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, but you know back in the day it was really hard to get Truth songs played on the radio. Yeah, um, it was really hard for Truth to get really good, um, you know, slots and television shows and just the the notoriety that all the artists were getting during that time. Right, Truth just seemed to be um, someone that was really overlooked, and that really bothered Roger because he had great. You know, great people, great songs, great concerts. It, anyone that ever came to Truth concerts will will never forget it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were kind of in that. We were all in that, just kind of that underdog. Nobody knows really who we are, or what we do, or what we're capable of. And Truth only had like one number one song, in, you know, up at that point of in almost twenty years of ministry.
3: Right.
1: So when when we decided when Roger Roger knew that, that the four of us had spent, you know about as much time in, in truth as we could. but the four of us guys had a sound together because we'd sung together for almost three years. And he helped us get a deal at Benson Records where Truth was um, signed as an artist. We went in did our first album together and the song where there's Faith at the Radio, we were still on the truth bus in in April of 2000 I'm sorry April of 1990 Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and where there's faith at the radio and just caught fire and was a number one song (laughs) within four or five weeks of hitting the charts and that was that was amazing but it was also really odd because here we're in a band (laughs) that had been trying for decades to get to get some respect on radio and then the four guys step out of the group and while they're still tour- touring with Truth, they have a number one song on Christian radio. So it was it was amazing. I, m- I remember that we got the news that our song had gone number one, and um, it we were it was just before a Truth concert. And so we all celebrated, high five. And we're like, okay, get on stage. <laughs> now we're gonna tear down. Yeah. Now we gotta load up the truck. Yeah. <laughs> now we gotta just go stay in, 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 in host homes, and the next day we got a six hour drive to Lincoln, Nebraska. So we, there's no time to celebrate and savor it. We just knew, oh, things are happening, but we still have a job to do here. Right. And then finally in August of 1990, we left Truth and went out on our own. And the great thing about that was we already had, a, we already had an audience. Right. Everybody that came to a Truth concert came to a For Him concert. <laughs> uh, and it was, it, you know, we were a new artist. In fact, we even won New Artist of the Year that year at the, at the Doves. But we really weren't. Right, we, we had been doing this a long time. We had more um, uh, experience under our belt than any other new artist out there. Yep. So, you know, it was it was it was cool, but yet it's like we didn't stop doing our thing. It's not like all of a sudden, like, whoa, look at us, America, we're here, we're the new. Christian music group you want to hear. And it's like, no, nope, well, we're going to do another concert, except now it's just the four of us right. instead of 24 of us. <laughs> right. And we just, we got our own bus and went on out and did 220 shows that first year. Wow. Out of truth, we didn't know any different. We're just like, yeah, we'll take a, sh- we play a show every night.
0: Right, right on. No laying at the pool for you guys.
1: <laughs> we did not. We did not take any time to savor it. We And I think we rejoiced that second year because we only did 200 right. shows that next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know that for him ever really sunk into any of us because like I said, we didn't have that, that, that time of just going, we made it. Oh my gosh. We're on the radio. It was literally, you made a record. We, 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 we would always take a two week break at Christmas in truth. We would finish like our, our last Christmas show with truth Truth on what the 23rd Mm -hmm. and we would be home by the 24th with our families We'd spend two weeks off and then we'd be right back on the road the second week of January. Right. Well, that year in between 1989 and 1990, we did our last show with Christmas show with Truth, had about three days home with family, and then we're in the studio January 1 recording the, the For Him album. And we were back out on the road like January 10th wow. doing Truth concerts. And it just was like, we did a record, right? <laughs> I think we did. (laughs) Somebody's got that record. Well, we're out here doing all these truth songs. And it just kind of was like a big overlap in our lives. And, um, you know, I think that was pretty good for us. And we just put our nose down and kept going to work.
0: That's remarkable. So I thought I was in for him yesterday, but I'm back in
1: truth today. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly how I felt.
0: Oh, wow. That's so cool, though. Okay, so you guys had tons and tons of radio hits give me three of your favorite four hymn songs that you guys sang you could either pick songs you sang or somebody else sang but give me three of your favorites
1: oh man that seems to change in every season of my life um yeah
0: I mean where there is faith is probably one of the three right
1: so I will tell you this before let me let me say this before I answer that question so I my daughter for a few years lived in Albuquerque and had her first baby down there. And, and it's about a 10 hour, 10 and a half hour drive from Tulsa to uh, Albuquerque. So I was coming back all by myself. I'd taken my wife down there, dropped her off. Um, our daughter just had her first baby. So my wife was going to stay there, you know, maybe two, or three weeks. Right. So I'm driving back from Albuquerque by myself. And I had this thought you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to every 4 album. There were 11 at the time. Um, I'm going to listen to every four album chronologically from front to back on this trip. And it should take me about 10 hours. Oh, wow. And it was really cool, man. I'm telling you, it, I, I heard songs that I'd forgotten about. Like literally I was texting the guys as I'm driving. I shouldn't have been doing that, but you know, there's some long dead straightaways on, on I 10 or on I 40,
0: <laughs> nothing but Armadillo's.
1: Yeah, between Oklahoma and, and New Mexico. Right. But um, I kept texting the guys just going, I forgot, I, I can't even sing the backgrounds of this song. I created the backgrounds for the song, and I can't even sing them. There were so many songs I'm just like, I forgot about that. That's a pretty good song. Or I'd hear another song and go, yeah, that wasn't very good. We <laughs> thought it was great at the time. That's not a very good song. We shouldn't have put that one on the record. Or uh, just all these really great memories came flooding through, and there were just some songs that – That I picked back up again and I was like, you know, I wish I had known now, then what I know now, we would have pushed that song a little more. That would have been a bigger hit than the other ones we released. Um, So having said that, you know, I would have told you before then what my three favorite songs were. I would tell you something different several years ago when I had that little uh, experience of listening through all the albums without, you know, uh, without stopping uh, and now, now that I have five grand or four grandchildren, my, my by the time this podcast airs, I'll have my fifth grandchild. Um, and just the season that God has me, and I've lost both my parents. I've lost one of my best friends recently. Uh, my my career has changed. There's some things that now when I listen to some for him songs, I go, "Wow, that really speaks to me hmm. right now." So I might throw some out you that that you may not even know, or maybe the people listening to this who have, who know for him don't remember, but there's a song called The Waiting mm-hmm. on the Walk On album that I played a lot. I just, I sometimes just stick it on and just go, that's a really great piece of art. It's really great music, and the words just are all over me right now. So that would be one. Where there is faith, I still sing. Anywhere I go, I still do Where There Is Faith. I think that's just a timeless song. Yep. It gets better with age. <clears throat> it's uh, it's helped me go through some tra- transition points in my life over the last five or six years. Um, and then if I had to pick a third, now I'm going to pick all the ones that I sang lead on. Sure. So no offense to the other three guys, uh, but those are just songs that I was always drawn to and wanted to sing. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about my dad lately. Uh, he passed away about 10 years ago. His favorite song was a song called Chisel Meets the Stone. Oh, wow. And that's on, that's on the Face the Nation album.
2: Yep.
1: Um, and that was a song written by Billy Simon. And Billy wrote a lot of songs for us in those first few records. But there's just something about that song that I still, I hear it today, and I that I just have a tear right. roll down my cheek when I hear it because I'm like, that's the, these are what I didn't realize at the time, and this is why youth is wasted on the young, um, <laughs> yeah. is because I didn't realize what I was speaking over myself when you sing these songs, you're speaking these words over yourself and your family. You're, you're reciting them in your heart. And, um, man, every time I hear those words of chisel meets the stone, I realize now why my dad, when he was in his sixties and seventies, always gravitated toward that song because the older I get, the more I realize, man, those lyrics may my life be fit. Um, where the hammer meets the nail, where the chisel meets the stone. Um, Uh, chip away what tries to hide the truth until there is um, a remarkable resemblance of you. Some of those lyrics are just like, I could never have written that. Hmm. And I just thank God that, that I had the opportunity to sing them.
2: Right.
0: So you're talking about songs that you love, song that your dad loved. Does it ever occur to you the impact that you four guys had on literally hundreds of thousands of people in the church?
1: John, I'll tell you, I'm going to be real honest about this. Um, when we when we walked away from For Him back in 20, uh, 2006, we were tired. Yeah, uh, we were tired. Um, you know, we we, we felt like we kind of ran out of things to say. Hmm. Uh, it was kind of hard to celebrate what had happened before because we knew that there was a. We didn't see much of a future going forward. Uh, so it's kind of like a marriage, when a marriage falls apart, you know, you are it's kind of hard to celebrate what came before because right. you know that, that now it's ending and it's never going to be the same. Uh, we never had any bitterness towards each other anymore. There's nothing like that. It's just kind of, we all came to the decision. Like, I think this has run its course.
0: 20 years is a long time. It really is.
1: And and there, a lot happens in 20 years, um, you know, good and bad and things that you you know, that you can't unsay or unsee or yep. unthink. And, uh, um, you know, I don't think we took enough time away when we were doing it. We never took a break. Hmm. And that really hurt us in the long run, I think. Had we taken a year off here and there or, you know, chose to do some other things instead of touring with our lives, hmm. I think we we might have had more music in us. We might have had more longevity but that's the way it was. We can't fix that. And so I'm not I'm not mad about it. Right. But I think all of us in some way walked away from and just let just set for him down and walked away.
2: Right.
1: And went, that was great, but we need to do something else. And personally, I just didn't want to listen to for him anymore. I didn't want to do any for him concerts. I, you know, I was working with a younger generation at, at the church that I that I became worship pastor at that just didn't. They didn't like Christian music. They didn't really <laughs> grow up listening to much more than Carmen
2: right.
1: um, or DC Talk, and For Him just wasn't in their wheelhouse. So I didn't, come, I didn't go to a place where For Him was celebrated, really. So that also kind of helped me distance myself from the past. And then, this is really cool, about eight years ago, John, I started getting random Facebook messages from people that said, hey, I don't know if you've heard this in a while, but... Here's what this for him song walked me through. Hmm. And I started getting these testimonies like I got a testimony from a lady who said she was almost she was so close to suicide that she knew she'd be dead within a week and she found a poster that I had signed with a verse of scripture underneath it that she looked up it brought her back to God. Oh wow. She went to her church, got baptized and And she's living for God. And she's like, thank you for signing that poster in Mm. 1996. I'm like, what? Oh, cool. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. I'm hearing stories about where there is faith and the measure of a man and the basics of life and for future generations from people who are now in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that are saying it had had not been for that song. had It not been for that concert I went to. I gave my heart to Christ at your concert in Louisville, Kentucky in 2002. And it just makes me go, Whoa, God. Okay. I get it. You, you've got me. What we did, what we did in for him really was orchestrated by you. Yeah. And, and, and I, there's a fondness now to all that, that I really cherish. Um, and honestly, it brings me closer to the guys again, just to know, Hey, God used us.
2: Yeah.
1: God really did something through us and our music and our ministry and, and the people we were able to impact, the, 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 the positive influence we had on young musicians. Uh, you know, Since I've been doing my radio show, I have a worship radio show, and I have people like Tomlin and, and um, Mark Hall of Casting Crowns and um, you know, some of these other worship leaders across the country. They'll come on my show, um, and they'll go, oh, man, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, for him. Right. I would come to four him concerts or I would get that new four hymn record and go, I want to do that someday. That's who I want to be. Right. And I realized, man, God, I had no idea you were doing all these things. Um, and so it's been just really cool to see how God has brought that back into our lives as a little, as a little kind of a wink and a nod, just going, you had, you didn't really know what you were doing, but I did. I was, I was doing something way beyond what you ever expected.
0: It's funny because the 10 hour drive, when you played all the four him CDs in a row, mm-hmm. that's what fans got to experience for years and years and years. Yeah, you're right. You you guys never had the benefit of sitting and listening to a finished four him album without having to go through the trouble and the the painstaking process of
1: making it. Right. That's exactly, and then and then and then getting it ready to tour. Yes. And then listening to it, going, "Oh, we should have done that." Oh man. <laughs> I wish we would have mixed it this way or we should have sang this line this way or yeah.
0: But fans have been able to take that 10-hour drive every day since those albums came out. That's right. And that's the impact that it has on them.
1: That's a really good that's a really good perspective, John.
0: Well, th- th- thank it's nice of you to say, but you guys the impact only eternity will tell the impact you guys truly had. Okay, so for him winds down and comes to a close. And you move on and go into church work. I know you ended up at church on the move in Tulsa, but I think didn't you work at a church before church on the move after for him?
1: Well, so first one of the one of the big, and um, I, I didn't really talk about this when I talk about for uh, him disbanding for a season. Um, I was kind of the impetus for that. I was I was the cause of for him <laughs> taking a break, uh, just because. You know, when I told you earlier about, you know, growing up in a little Southern Baptist church and, you know, these deacons and, you know, elders of the church kind of speaking over me, Mm -hmm. what they were actually saying were, what they're actually saying was, you're going to be a great worship director someday. You're going to be, you're going to be a really good music director. And I was just like, oh no, I'm not doing that. That is the, that is the nerdiest, queerest thing I could ever think of because every worship director I knew mm-hmm. was, was a nerd who was just, they were, they had these operatic voices and they sang the the square songs. I was like, no, that will not be me. Right. And I ran from that forever until I woke up one night. I think this was after a for him point of grace show or it might've been for him Jackie Velasquez. It was some big show that we did. I remember waking up in the middle of the night after that show going, I had this vision or a dream. I don't know really what it was, but I felt like God sp- spoke to me and said, there's something else I want you to do hmm. that I didn't call you to Christian music. I called you to sing for me. And it was a broader, it was a broader idea than just seeing Christian music. And it just kept sticking in my heart that I was to go back and help the local church. Hmm. And one of the things that I really processed through that with a lot of people I talked to and, uh, you know, uh, people that God had in my life that really helped me talk through some of these things was that, man, the Christian music industry was born because churches were not allowing really talented musicians to sing the songs they wanted to sing in their church. Right. They weren't letting them play their guitars and their drums and,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, sing their original music. And guys like Chris Christian back in the, in the seventies and the early eighties began to see this and go, we could, we'll make a home for you. We'll, we'll let you come We'll give you a studio, we'll produce your songs, and we'll actually put it in the stores for people to hear. Yep. And you talk to all those all those cats in the early days of Christian music, they were all youth pastors and worship leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the early Christian music pioneers gave them an opportunity to do what the churches wouldn't wouldn't let them do. So fast forward a couple of decades, what's happening? The church is losing all of their quality musicians to Nashville. Mm -hmm. and to the Christian music industry. And now the church is completely bankrupt of anybody that can make anything, uh, make any great art.
2: Right.
1: And I just felt like God spoke to me and said, I want the artists to go back to the church. I'm tired of the church not having quality art. And I just decided that's what I'm going to do. I think that's my first calling and that's what I should do. And so in 2000, I told this to the guys in 1999. I believe it's July of 99. We are working on our hymns project. And I told the guys, I said, I don't know what this means. This is what God's put on my heart. I'm putting a a timer on on my timing for him, and I'm going to go to the local church somewhere somehow. Hmm. And uh, it turned out that a friend of mine asked me to start a church with him in Orlando in 2000. So I kind of did both. I did for him and was a local worship pastor, church plant guy in between 2001 and 2005. And then um, uh, the pastor Willie George at Church on the Move in Tulsa called me, and at the time they were about a 10 to 12,000 member church. And he said, "I think you're supposed to come up here and be my worship pastor and start to really live out what's on your heart to do as far as arts in the church." And that was just that was just kind of a dream scenario for me. So I called the guys and just said, "Hey, this is it. I'm done. I can't do uh, worship at a mega church and keep this kind of schedule on the road." I was uh, on full-time staff here at Church on the Move in Tulsa from 2005 till just last year, February of 2019, Wow! and I felt like uh, God released me. Mission accomplished. You've done what I've sent you here to do, raised up a worship culture and and a group of leaders that can, that can carry on what you started, and so now I still lead worship at Church on the Move a couple times a month, but I also go to churches across the country and lead worship coach worship leaders kind of, I'm kind of my own Gordon twist now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
1: I want to be Gordon twist to as many worship leaders and aspiring artists as I can. I have a lot, you know, we talked about this earlier you know, that 200 and what is it? 345 concerts a year, a yep. thousand concerts with truth, another three to 3,500 concerts with for him In 16 years past that. Um, I've been on stage leading worship over 5,000 times um, uh, yeah, it's, I have a lot in my brain and a lot in my heart right. that I want to download to as many people as possible while I still have a chance. So I think that's what my next 10 to 15 years, I, I call it my third act. <laughs> my first, my first act was, was Christian music. My second act was, uh, being a, a full-time worship pastor and church staff guy. And my third act will be to, uh, to be a mentor and a coach and, and just, again, just just help as many young artists and worship leaders cross that finish line of being the best that they can be and getting the most out of what God's given them to do.
0: okay, so what do you say to me when I walk into your office and tell you that I want you to help me be a better worship leader? What does that mean to you?
1: So you know it's a it's it's different for everybody. Uh, everybody has a different talent level. everybody has a different calling. right. I think what we have to start out with is who are you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you want to do? What do you feel like God's put in your heart to do now? And then after that's what's in your hand to do. Right. So let's take what we, what you have right now and let's make it the absolute best that it can be. Absolutely. And, and we want to work. We, we want you to become so good at what you do that you can't be ignored, <laughs> that you, you want to give yourself away so much mm-hmm. in what you do, whether it's speaking, whether it's singing, whether it's writing, whether it's playing, I want to teach you how to give yourself away. Right. When you, when you perform and when you get up in front of an, of an audience, um, I I do this with speakers as well, helping them to go from just saying the words on a page to actually giving themselves away when they speak. Hmm. Same thing with singers. We don't just want to sing the right note with the right word at the right time. I want you to tell me what's deep in your gut and marry that to the, to the notes and the words that have been given to your mouth to say and sing. Right. And then we've got something Hmm. Um, I'm just going to teach you to be the absolute best you that you can be using the gifts that you already have. Right. And that's the thing. You're probably not going to learn different gifts. Right. Wow. You are who you are. Yep. you've been that way since you were, you know, probably a preteen. Right. But what you have is exactly what God wanted you to have. Mm -hmm. So let's make the most of what he's given you and let's see how we can tie those gifts to your passion. Right. Because a lot of times we are there's things we're good at we're good at we don't really have a passion for. Mm -hmm. That means there's a roadblock somewhere, or there's been words somebody said something to you that make you doubt yourself and or hate that gift. And so that's a part of the journey too is is to see if we can we can connect the gift with the passion. Wow. And then man, you start a fire that nobody can put out.
0: Dude, what a great what a great response to that question. That's fantastic. Okay, so what would you say is the biggest obstacle or struggle in dealing with people that come in to have you work with them?
1: Um, I would say that they're listening to the wrong voices. I'm not saying I'm the right voice 100% of the time, but I also know just from, especially with singers, one of the things that really bothers me about worship music is that it's being so quickly written, so quickly produced, and it's being churned out that it's not there's not like all a quality to it. Right. Um, and especially with the singers, you know, if you know this, if you've worked in a church and you've worked in a church, John, is that musicians aren't for most churches in America aren't taken from Juilliard and saying, Oh, you are, you're an accomplished vocalist. You should come be a vocalist for our church. No, they see somebody with an ability and they have a need, And so they put somebody up with that ability who hasn't been trained yet and say, lead our church in worship. Yeah. And then they find some success at it. The church loves them. They start to grow a little bit, and then the pressure hits. Well, now we need more. We need more. We need more. And when you don't know – when you don't have any training with your voice or the way you communicate, you start listening to the wrong voices. You start listening to other people who have done it the same way you've done it. Well, the bad news is they're on a trajectory – of of ultimate failure with their voice and with their career. What you need to be doing is finding coaches. You need your Gordon twist to come in and say, no, this is how you get stronger. This is how we get the best out of you. And this is how you do this 30 years from now. Um, that's the that's the biggest problem I see with communicators in the church is that no one's coached them. Right. If you're going to be the pastor of that church, chances are you went to seminary, you you have cut your teeth in youth being a youth pastor or a children's pastor, you've worked your way up, um, but musicians on the stage, especially worship leaders, there's typically not that that journey for them, and it's sad, and a lot, of, a lot of worship leaders, and I talk to them all the time across the country, they're in over their heads, Oh yeah, and literally the clock is ticking on when they're either going to hit an emotional wall or a wall with their voice, and their voice is just going to fry out, and they're never going to be able to sing the way they wanted to sing.
0: Right. Okay, so for me, Andy, modern worship, uh, there's a dark side. There's a sad side to it that um, I've experienced a few times. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine up here, she's a, a great worship leader. She's got a great heart, loves the Lord, Loves very talented, plays keyboards and leads worship. She called me one time and said, hey, I don't have a bass player for Sunday. I'm leading worship at a church down in Detroit. Could you play for me? So I'm like, sure, I'm not doing anything. So my wife and I went down, and I took my bass, and I was going to play for her. And we get there, and we sound check and rehearse. And the sad thing <laughs> is it's this beautiful, traditional Nazarene church that's got a gorgeous sanctuary. What they had done is they had taken everything from the altars to the baptistry and painted the whole thing black. And then the rest of it was this really nice 70s wow. 80s huh. it was dated but it was beautiful and it was well kept and it was they'd spent a lot of money years ago and I can just hear the conversations they didn't want to redo it cuz it was still pretty i get it and we go back into the choir room to do the pre-show pre i'm sorry the pre-service meeting with the worship team and the tech team and everything and there were these two cool 25 year old haircuts sitting there with laptops and coffee their feet up on the table. Um, they'd obviously been to a seminar where they learned how to be the air traffic controllers of the service. And they were telling everybody what they're going to do. And when you do this, we'll do that. And then we'll do uh. this, then you do that. And then, you know, after all of this takes place, then this is when the pastor will come up. And we'll make sure your lapel mic is is unmuted and everything. And that's literally the only thing they said to the pastor was... You come up at this time and we'll unmute your lapel mic so you're ready to go. That was the only input the pastor had in that whole pre-service meeting was just taking one order from those guys. It was so sad.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've i seen those situations more than I care to remember. And and again, that you're hitting on something that... And look, I, here's the thing. Those 25-year-olds are... are Doing the best they know how to do, mm-hmm. with the information that they've been given and the resources that they've been that they've been handed. Yes. But here's the problem: if nobody tells you that it can be better, right. then you're not going to get better. We're all creatures of comfort. We're all going to take the easiest path. None of us are going to choose a harder path to get from point A to point B. If we see an easier path to get there, we're always going to take it. And if we, and if along that easy path, if everybody around us says, Hey, that was great. Oh, that's good. Only because they don't know how to take that path, right? which means they don't know how to sing. They don't know how to play an instrument. Then you're never going to get better. Yeah. You're never going to say, you know, at some point I should take the harder path because it's going to make me better. And I'm going to learn way more about myself and my job if I take the, the road less traveled. Um, and and here's the thing, there are a lot of churches that are growing uh despite the lack of excellence in their worship.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you're growing and your offerings are good, why do you need to get better? Why do we need to change what we're doing? <laughs> right. This is going great. And and that is the first, that's the that that's the first thing that you let into your heart that's gonna cause your downfall. Right, Because we all know this. This is physics. This is what I learned in Oklahoma State in physics, <laughs> is that if something isn't growing, it's decaying. Yep. If something's not getting better, it's getting worse. There's nothing in creation that except God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. We, we're all either aging or we're decaying. Yep. We're all either learning or we're losing information. Um, we're either getting stronger, or we're getting weaker, we're either getting healthier, or we're getting sicker. There's no in between. And, and if you don't have a mindset of, I've always got to find ways to get better. Um, I need to rethink my process. I need to push more, um, in my giftings, then you're, you're, you're going to wake up one morning and realize that you're the, everybody's going to realize that you're the one that hasn't been growing. Yeah. And that happens in churches all the time. A church will grow, 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 but the worship doesn't follow because, you know, well, the pastor can't do it and the deacons can't do it and the elders can't do it. But these kids, they sure can knock out a set in 20 minutes and it's great. (laughs) And they're not growing. And the church all of a sudden hits a wall. Mm -hmm. Guess what the first thing they're gonna come back to? Well, the worship's not very good. (laughs) You know, our services aren't great. The reason people aren't coming is because that church over there is is way better at doing a service than we are. And now, where are you? Now you're really behind.
0: Right, right. Okay, so before we wrap up here, Andy, tell everyone where they can find you in case they want to either contact you or hand you off to their pastor to contact you.
1: Okay, so the good news is there aren't very many Andy Chrismans out there. <laughs> so if you'll just type my name in, Andy Chrisman, into your browser, you'll find me. You can find me at andychrisman.net. Uh, that'll get you the most the most info about what i do you can also find me on facebook twitter instagram at andy chrisman uh, i also have a worship show uh if your listeners um have christian radio that they listen to i'm on 400 stations around the world it's a it's a, a weekend worship show called worship with andy chrisman uh that's one thing's that been a real blessing to me because i stay on the cutting edge of worship music that's coming out and do interviews with artists um so uh, you can listen to me on, on a lot of nights on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings on your favorite uh, Christian radio station.
0: You've been doing that show a long time.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. When I first moved here in 2015, or sorry, man, I get my years mixed up. Uh, when I moved here in 2005, right. uh, I had, there were two Christian radio stations in Tulsa, KXOJ, which has been there like 30, 40 years. And then Cox Communications had a, had a station called Spirit 102.3. And Spirit 102.3 came to me and said, "Hey, we we have this idea you should do a a Sunday morning radio show." I'm like, "That sounds interesting. I'll give it a shot." And they had budgets and they had, you know, they had just all the stuff set up for me to to walk in. Same week, KXOJ came to me and said, "Hey, we love you. We've loved for him. We've always played your music. We think it'd be great for you to do a Sunday morning radio show with us." I'm like, "Hmm, there's there's word on the street." Um, I said, okay, so what are we going to do? And they're like, well, we don't know. We don't have a plan yet. And I went, okay, I'm going to go to spirit. Let's start there because they have a plan. Uh, I did that for about a year and a half. And then, then that station flipped to talk radio and the guys at Jay just said, Hey, bring it on over here. You know how to do it now. Bring it on over our station. And since then we've grown to 400 stations or syndicated.
2: That's remarkable.
1: <laughs> um, we have every last year. We had a great group of artists. We had, had Matt Redmond and, and Mercy Me, and uh, oh gosh, um, Cody Carnes and Carrie Job and anybody in worship music—they're all on the show, right? And they're all friends of the show. And um, it's a great place to, you know, I put playlists up all the time of, of new worship music. It's just a great place to stay current. I have pastors will text me all the time, just saying, "Hey, we need we need to know what the most current worship music out there is," and I'll hook them up a playlist because that's what I do.
0: Yeah, dude, you do that, but you do a whole lot more than just playlists and stuff. So I'm proud of you. I can't thank you enough for doing this. I'm going to get you out of here in just a minute, but I just want you to know how proud of you I am and how much I love you.
1: <laughs> John, I could say the same about you. I love you, buddy. Just hearing your voice takes me back to man, being on the bus with you and and that Diet Coke in your hand. It's just... It's, <laughs> And talking about Dan Marino, that, that, just, that, oh, that dude. just makes me happy.
0: Okay, I got I to gotta go back to this real quick before I let you go. Okay. I mean, I could talk okay. all day, but I know you don't have all day. The time you called me, <laughs> you were at Disney World. <laughs> do you remember that?
1: Yeah, I do. You need to tell the story. <laughs> I'll remember more of it. But yeah, this is sounding familiar.
0: Okay. So one day my phone rings, and I answer it, and it's you, of course. And you said, okay, so I was standing in line at the Aerosmith Rock and Roller Coaster, and I'm thinking, I should call John, Aerosmith's playing. And I thought, no, I'll call him later. But then while I'm standing here listening to Aerosmith, Dan Marino just walked by, so I knew I had to call you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I knew I knew I had to call you because it was Aerosmith and Dan Marino. <laughs> hearing from you was great but the fact that it was Aerosmith and Dan Marino that made you think of me was even better
1: oh hey speaking of rock and roller coaster okay I gotta tell this story real quick uh I guess I'm okay to share this yeah yeah I don't think I'll get I don't think I'll get in trouble um so the guy that designed rock and roller coaster he's a Christian and a big for him fan and he came to one of our concerts in Orlando one night and came backstage and opened up his laptop and said, hey, I just wanted to show you something. He introduced himself to us. So I want to show you something. So I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an Imagineer at Disney. I design roller coasters and rides and attractions, and that's just what I do. And he said, we have designed this new roller coaster at Hollywood Studios. And he said, I programmed it to your song, The Ride of Life. Oh, sweet. And he said, I just wanted to show you what the ride's going to look like on the simulator. So he plays a simulator on his on his computer, and you hear this roller coaster ride of life lifts you up and lets you down, and we're just like, "Whoa, this is so cool!" Like we're gonna be a part of Disney, <laughs> and he goes, "Okay, now, here's the thing: the people at Disney they're not gonna go for for him being right. for him music being played on a on a ride. They're gonna want somebody really big name. But I just want you to know, whatever is chosen, you guys." Your music, your song has been the inspiration for this ride. Oh,
0: dude, that's awesome.
1: So what it turns out is they chose Aerosmith. And if you've ever ridden the ride, you know, you go through the whole Aerosmith experience and then get on the ride. But here's what we used to do. I used to take my kids and I say, okay, I know you're hearing a lot of Aerosmith music right now. It's really loud. But if you'll sing as they shoot you out of the out of the tunnel to start the ride. You can sing this roller coaster ride of life, and then there's a loop-de-loop, lifts you up and lets you down. Uh, or there's there's a corkscrew, and I think I can't remember. It's been so long since I've, I've ridden it, but you can sing the chorus of Roller Coaster Ride by Four Hymn, um as you ride that as you ride Rock and Roller Coaster. And I thought, man, that's really cool. Not a lot of people are ever gonna know that, but um, just those little things, I think God winks at you and goes. Yeah, this is cool. You'll, you know, I, I thought of you when we were doing this.
0: Dude, that, that is like the perfect ending to a perfect phone call, dude. That is fantastic.
1: <laughs> Good. I'm glad I could help.
0: Thanks so much, Andy, for taking the time to do this today, man. I love you, and I appreciate
1: you. Yeah, I love you, buddy. You're a lifelong friend, and I know we haven't seen each other face-to-face in a long time. Hopefully, we can get together here soon.
0: Right on, dude. We will make that happen. All right, buddy. My thanks to you for listening today. My special thanks to Andy Christman for being my guest. Next Friday, part one of my conversation with longtime booking agent and manager, Charles Doris. Have a fantastic week, everyone. See you next Friday.